soaring inflation, continuous supply chain disruptions, and an urgent energy security crisis following the war in Ukraine. And in the midst of all of this, are shipping emissions still a priority for industry stakeholders? And do emission reductions have any value before there is a carbon tax? These are some of the questions that keep haunting us in the industry in 2022. And the answers will inform how the shipping's uh, decarbonization journey will unfold. And it's not only inflation that's rising, it's also carbon emissions from shipping that are on an upward trend, making net zero in 2050 a rather unrealistic target unless drastic action is taken. But even with this rather somber backdrop, there are cautious reasons to be optimistic. If we look at the regulatory landscape, uh, we are still waiting for clarity on how the EU ETS will be implemented, but it is very likely that there will be a carbon price on shipping emissions within and to and from Europe as of 2024. And even in the IMO, discussions are ongoing on a carbon price uh, and how to use that to curb shipping emissions as part of the revision of the climate strategy. But lots of hurdles are yet to be uh, passed. On the demand side, there are also some positive developments. More than a third of the world's largest publicly traded companies have now a net zero target for 2050. Major investors, including the Norwegian government pension fund, which holds more than 1.3% of global listed companies, they have recently stated that they will work with all their portfolio companies on their targets and plans to reduce scope 1, 2 and scope 3 emissions. And most who are on this uh, webinar today, they will know that shipping emissions typically fall into the scope three emissions category. So this pull from customers and from investors, that must surely have an impact. We are lucky to have with us as panelists people who are out and about in the world, ready to help us make sense of this rather blurry situation and answer the questions that heads up this webinar series. Do people still care about shipping emissions or have other concerns taking top priority? With us today, we have Julian Bray, Editor-in-Chief of Tradewinds and a close observer of the industry for many years. We also have Marta Lamp-Sandvik, Vice President, Energy Transition Solutions in DNB and the champion for an inclusive and forward-leaning shipping industry. We have Engebret Dam, CEO of Klavnes Combination Carriers, which provides the world's most carbon-efficient deep-sea shipping solution within tanker and dry bulk. And last but not least, we also have Johanna Christensen, CEO of the Global Maritime Forum, where she gathers stakeholders from across the industry to collaborate, not only on decarbonisation, but also a range of different uh, topics. So this is the, our esteemed uh, panelists who will help us answer these questions today. And if you follow uh, shipping, you will know that a lot of shipping stakeholders were gathered in New York uh, last week. Johanna, I want to turn to you first. You're fresh back from New York where GMF held the annual forum last week uh, under the heading Braving Rough Seas. So if you can give us a bit of a yeah, sense of the mood. I had a look at the global uh, monitor issues uh, that you published, which revealed that decarbonization still ranks as the number one issue haunting the industry. So I'm curious to learn more. What did you discuss and uh, what's, the, what's the industry's take on, on the current uh, situation? 
So I, don't, I don't know that I can speak on behalf of the industry, but certainly in the, um, at the summit, uh, there were a lot of discussions around decarbonization, of course, but around a wider range of issues as well. Uh, in particular, related to human sustainability, I think we've all become aware of the human factor in shipping over these years, especially through the COVID pandemic. Um, but then also on the impact of the crisis and in particular the war in Ukraine and what impact that's had on global supply chains uh, for critical goods such as food, fertilizer, energy, etc. Um, goods that we all uh, rely on and that populations around the world rely on for their sustenance. Um, uh, I, I will say, I think, I think there's a... Uh, it's it sort of saying uh, sort of the, the mood, I think it's really hard to say, to be totally honest, uh, that if I was to say in one word, it would be uncertainty. A lot of mm. questions about what might the impacts be in the long term. Uh, there were others uh, that participated in this panel as well. So, so I'd, I'd be interested to hear their take, but I think especially uncertainty is a big question. And one of the things that I found was quite interesting that was that especially related to the decarbonization of shipping and, and tackling uh, shipping's uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions is that there were sort of two prevailing narratives. So one is that the crisis is, um, is going to um, slow down efforts. It's going to make it difficult, more difficult uh, to tran transition to a zero emission future. And the other narrative is like, no, actually, it's going to speed things up because it's going to speed up the development of the green fuels that are going to need it across be needed across a range of industrial sectors, but also for shipping. So much more attention on on this transition away from fossil fuels because we've seen uh, the impact on the reliance on on fossil fuels um, uh, after after the uh, after Russia's invasion of U Ukraine. So there's these these two narratives, if you will. I think I I heard at the summit that the the let let's go, let's do this. Uh, we have we have tailwinds actually in in our efforts uh, is is probably the prevailing one. But I think both exist and both coexist in the industry. I think the answer also very much relies on you know how quickly will will renewable uh, energy be deployed. I mean, if you were to replace uh, all fuel in the shipping industry with e-ammonia tomorrow, it would absorb all the renewable capacity uh, globally. Uh, Julian, you were also in uh, in New York. Uh, do you did you also pick up this uh, rather conflicting uh, mood? On the one hand, it's going to accelerate. On the other hand, it uh, might actually throw us a little bit of course. Indeed, uh, there was that there was that mood of uncertainty, but there was a, a huge mood of uh, engagement as well, and not just at the GMF, at the whole of the uh, the New York Climate Week last uh, last week. And just to say, by the way, um, uh, pleasure to be here today, and good to hear Flat Fat Boy Slim introducing us on a on an upbeat note. I used to be a, a bit of an amateur DJ back in the day, and uh, anything to lift the spirits is always uh, always a good thing. I think the 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 question of this uncertainty is the, um, the, the tension between the very real near-term question of energy security, which clearly is, particularly in Europe, the number one issue, and then the longer-term uh, move towards renewables. And um, it was very interesting listening to the speech of uh, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, on the Monday, um, the, uh, while... Uh, while uh, uh, Johanna's uh, organization had the uh, had the title braving rough seas he really doubled down on that and uh, and stressed how uh, chaotic and crisis ridden the world was right now however however there is 
this element of hope that the the strain that's being shown now, particularly in Europe and particularly in the uh, with transitional uh, uh, um, uh, fuels, is accelerating. There's about a billion dollars a year being invested in uh, transitional fuels now, which is about the same as oil and gas, remarkably. Yes, that doesn't need to quadruple or quintuple in the next few years to uh, make make adequate, adequate supplies, but people think it will be there. So there is that there is that move towards uh, uh, towards this transition. It was interesting. Rasmus Back Nielsen uh, uh, from Trafigura made the point that uh, he felt that uh, Putin's uh, war against Ukraine had accelerated the transition by five to ten years. Now that may be being a little bit optimistic, but it certainly has accelerated. You see that uh, throughout uh, throughout Europe. The big question arising from the GMF was that of carbon pricing. The mar- there need to be market measures. Everyone seemed to agree that the big push was needed to lift carbon pricing towards the price of renewables, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in more detail later. But that is the key that needs to be put in the lock. And if I could just say. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be in, involved in the GMF events. Uh, a fantastic forum of uh, CEOs who are open and uh, uh, sharing both their knowledge and their concerns and their uncertainties. Uh, and it's a very constructive environment. That's a really nice uh, summary there, uh, Julian. And I just want to remind the audience that you uh, can ask questions to our panelists in the chat. We'll uh, we'll try to pick up as many questions as possible. So. Use the occasion, but uh, you spoke a little bit about the investments that are are needed. And, and on the one hand, decarbonizing shipping is incredibly expensive, uh, requiring investments of more than a trillion dollars between now and, and 2050. But on the other hand, it's also you know relatively affordable if you're able to distribute the costs throughout the supply chains. I mean, we've all heard about a couple of cents it will cost per banana or a few dollars per ton of uh, cargo in in dry bulk. Um, I want to turn to you, Engelbert, because you frequently meet with your uh, customers being leading uh, industrial and uh, oil companies. Can you let us in on some of the main challenges that you currently observe in the, in the market when it comes to decarbonization? Can the market fix this uh, conundrum by itself that you know it needs a carbon price, but it's not there yet, and investments need to happen now if we are to uh, get onto the right trajectory for emission reductions? I think a lot has really happened over the last years with the fact that the majority of our customers are, have started to measure uh, emissions from the, the ocean freight and are requiring ship owners to report. And of course, the establishment of sea cargo charter was a big milestone. But the big challenge is really how to take it from there, how to develop a strategy that for these big shipping customers that will effectively reduce emissions of the ocean freight and will prepare them for the introduction of hopefully global carbon taxes ahead in time. And, and uh, we see a big difference there. Uh, there are the front runners that are willing to take specific actions, to have the focus. They are, they are willing to experiment. They're willing to put money on the table. Uh, and, and there are a lot of uh, other companies that are doing very limited, have not really advanced, uh, are not putting this up as a priority, having more like a wait and see attitude. And I think the difference is really the, t- the tone from the top. Is scope three emissions important for these companies? And I do believe they're making a grave mistake if they're not starting to prepare. No, because waiting to the last minute, it will leave them exposed. And I think that's the message we give to our customers that we want to cooperate for them in order to bring down emissions, but it requires some active attitude from them. 
And, and on your last question, can we can industry fix this on our own? I think we can do a lot. I think there's a lot of untapped possibilities to make shipping more efficient, both on the trading side, on the operation side, and there you need, of course, the participation of the crew, which is essential, and of course, on making ships more energy efficient. There are a lot of opportunities which are there that can, in totality, bring down emission quite a bit. But to reach the net zero, we definitely need, as as we as Julian. Uh, we talked about we need we need a global carbon tax. We need the right incentives. We need the predictability that makes it possible for us to invest huge sums in order to introduce uh, zero emission uh, ships. I think that that's the that that's the key really for the years coming on that we get this predictability. And and at the moment we have none. But so would you say it's uh, do do your customers do they believe in a carbon tax uh, coming in a in a few years and then do they see the value of insuring against it? I think many many do, uh, many are are just not really up to the point where they can uh, they can make up their mind because there's so much conflicting information and and also the, to be honest the progress in IMO isn't really that impressive. Uh, and hopefully we will see some good progress over the next years. So I think it, it's probably difficult for industrial companies where shipping is only, you know, uh, some side side uh, activity uh, to have a firm opinion on it. But but in, in mm. Chicago Charter, when there's a, a lot of distinguished companies that have an active point of view on it, and I think yeah, hopefully we can add a lot of new companies into Chicago Charter uh, going forward. Mm. I think a recurring, recurring uh, theme here is, uh, you know, is there a value uh, of in carbon when there is no no price on it? And, you know, as uh, as this discussion show, we often uh, talk about the need for IMO to step up or, or national governments to ensure that this incentive is is put in uh, place. But this is yet to happen. So we're a bit curious whether financial actors such as banks uh, are, can or they can be able to fill the gap by, uh, for example, providing incentives through sustainability linked financing. So that's a cue to you. Uh, Marta, DNB was among the initiators of the Poseidon principle. Uh, and as a bank, you have moved on from requiring disclosure to also pursue finan- financing frameworks that try to stimulate or at least incentivize companies to pursue emission reductions. How, how do you engage with customers to get them in on that, uh, in on that journey? Well, I think, first of all, um, I don't think the financing um, market can can fix the entire gap. So, so we need all good forces here, right? We need everyone to to participate and pull in the right direction. But what banks have been doing is engaging with clients, and in, especially in terms of sustainable finance, in terms of both green loans, uh, which is more relevant for the wider industry, but also for uh, sustainability-linked financing. Right. So, so it 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 is a measure to to show direction, and there are various sort of levers and tools that banks can use, and the product way is, is one of them. But what's actually more interesting than uh, you know sort of a potential proxy for for carbon price or or margin reductions, which what's more interesting is the the dialogue and the the sort of market push that you get from these products, and you get more focus on ambitiousness, on materiality of, um, of ESG and KPIs and factors, and you get sort of a, a very distinct development in terms of emissions as well. So I, I think that's very, very interesting. And it's also something that 
you know, when some banks start doing it, more banks start doing it. There's a discussion on, on ambitiousness levels and, and quality, and which is really, really interesting. And, and more companies start doing this as well. And then we sort of have this, this joint pull in the right direction. And I think that's, that's also quite something that's quite important. And even green financing, and it, it's, it's something that uh, the shipping industry doesn't talk about that much because we, we tend to think green financing, that's, that's the EU taxonomy. And deep sea shipping isn't really within that, but we have to see the entire value chain here. And, and, you know, in order to decarbonize shipping as an end user for, for green or low carbon fuels, we also need to, to expand um, renewables, right? So, so it's sort of a... I think we lost, <clears throat> Amanda, you were for, uh, for, for a second there, but I think what she was trying to get at is also the importance of, of transparency, right? That's the different stakeholders um, Marta, you were interrupted by uh, some tech issues, so uh, I just want to comment that I think one thing that you you really raised, which is important, is the transparency on on emissions and and the impact of, of CO two in the supply chain that allows for for companies to actually start having a discussion on on what they can uh, can do. If you have to collaborate, you have to have a have a single truth, uh, so to speak. And I think there the Poseidon principles is is doing a great uh, job. But I I also want to challenge that a little bit, right? Because you have the Poseidon principles where bank signatories commit to reporting on the climate alignment uh, of their shipping portfolios using uh, the so-called annual efficiency ratio, the AER. And then uh, next door, you have uh, the sea cargo charter where charters do the same. Uh, they use a different metric, the EEOI, uh, the Energy Efficiency Operational Index. But I'm just wondering, are we making collaboration uh, more difficult by having uh, actors in the same same environment, so to speak, uh, disclosed using disclosed using different metrics uh, to measure their climate uh, alignment. I think that's a that's a very fair question, and it's a fair question coming from uh, from you guys as well, uh, given how you measure things. And it's it's when the Poseidon principle started, right? So so the Poseidon principles came before the Sea Cargo Charter, and and. For banks that we started this, we don't have access to. It's a voluntary um, initiative, and we don't have access to cargo data. And so it was sort of at the beginning a, a you know, way of sort of, it's not a perfect solution, but it's a lot better than not doing anything in terms of data gathering. And of course, banks are aware that you know, the AR is a proxy uh, to a large extent for, for, and the EOI is more probably more sort of succinct and, and precise that way. Um, but I think again, sort of not letting the perfect be the enemy of good is the a very important thing, and we're all moving in the same direction. And we have it, it has inspired as well a lot of you know similar initiatives and a lot of push, and that's really just what we have to do here. Um, so I think it's been that's also quite interesting. Mm. And uh, Johanna, maybe you want to comment on that. I know now we have the first uh, disclosure also with with. SSC and then do you see a lot of support for more transparency around the disclosure? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that just uh, to Engelbert's point is the, 
the number of signatories is growing continuously. I think in terms of the, the choice of data and the choice of, or metric rather, it is just a factor of availability of data. And I think uh, if the banks had full access to, to, to cargo data, they would incorporate that as well, just in terms of just the quality of the metric is, is a better one. Um, um, but I also think at the same time, it's, you know, the, most of the underlying data is the same. So, so from that point of view, it, it, uh, the alignment is actually not that difficult to probably bank. Um, I think what it points to more generally is that, that uh, to the extent that more and more information can be publicly available, um, not only for investors, for other stakeholders to be able to make better decisions, that's, that's, the, that's the underlying uh, goal of, of, of the different initiatives in any case. So the more information can be, be available, the more can be made publicly available, and so that we can have more transparency throughout the full value chain, that will allow for much better decision-making, no matter who the stakeholder. And if I can just add to that. Yeah, sorry. Water, go for it. No, just to add to that quickly. Um, in, in, yes, Poseidon. I just, uh, you know, I mean, we have been quite clear on this, is that, of course, that we believe that the choice of metrics is extremely important. Because what we're seeing is that the IMO is, is using metrics that are giving the wrong incentives to the industry. Uh, and, and that is serious, especially, I mean, you can live with it, you know, with the, with the short-term measures, the minimum requirements that we will fulfill for sure. But the problem is that in the next step, if you get the global carbon tax, and that's based on a matrix that, that is totally wrong and gives the wrong incentives to the industry, then you are, then you are really uh, going the wrong way. And that's what my own concern is if the bankers are using the wrong matrix. They're actually you know, promoting something which is, is, can, can, can make a really bad uh, impact on the industry. So that's why I, I think, you know, we're... Uh, Joining up on a, on a unified matrix has a value to show to politicians that you need this is what which is, uh, we should use. Julian, do you? So I had some technical issues here. Uh, I should probably answer this one. I don't know if you heard me before, but um, when it comes to the Poseidon principles, and just let me be very, very clear banks are, yes, it gives us an opportunity to report our alignment and be transparent about where we are. And emissions data is not, I mean, banks understand that there is a difference between AER and EOI. We understand that all these proxies are may not be perfect for every type of shipping sector. And emissions data is by far not the only point that we select clients on. And so what this does is actually just help us have another level of dialogue. But the client, we're not I think we, you know, this is anyway not going to be a technical discussions around uh, how a metric should be established. But I think that the debate is is anyway quite symptomatical of how how difficult the whole decarbonisation discussion is because it does mean uh, different things to different uh, uh, segments, for example. But uh, Julian, you've been uh, observing the shipping industry through uh, many ups and downs throughout uh, the years. If you zoom out a little bit, how, how do you think the energy transition in shipping? will unfold. 
Thanks. Could I just uh, can I come back onto that in a minute? Just make a few comments on the yeah. uh, on the question of standards. As uh, Martha said, the we shouldn't let the uh, the great get in the way of the good, and we are where we are, working with the metrics we have. However, misjudged and uh, unfit for purpose, some of them may be, particularly some of the uh, the IMO uh, metrics. Um, I think last year they, at COP twenty six, there was a minor piece of acronym building in the background that uh, I think was uh, will become very important. That's the uh, the creation of this International uh, Sustainability Standards Board, which is working towards bringing together standards. So there is a effectively a sort of an IFRS carbon accounting standard system that will be the um, the uh, the, the uh, authoritative measure for this sort of thing built on the CDP measures and uh, and, and and others um, why that's important is uh, you know let's be let's be honest about this uh, shipping industry the shipping industry is tough highly competitive and frankly it likes gaming the system you know uh, we as journalists we're uh, when we see uh, financial results results from companies uh, in amongst the uh, the formal um, uh, formal results we have things like you know a time charter equivalent uh, Earnings thrown at us and waved as being some great, uh, great symbol of their success, and, and largely they are um, self-defined metrics of the particular company, what they put into them and, and, and when. You know, there does need to be some security put into those uh, into those metrics, and that brings me on to another bigger issue actually, and it's about which feeds into this, and it's about what we think of as ESG. And that whole sustainability thing. There's obviously a, a debate been going on about the relevance of ESG in the light of the Ukraine war and the rebound in, in the value of investing in fossil fuels in the last six months. And a few commentators have tried to pick this apart. And there is this tension, which I actually hadn't quite put my finger on before, but I now understand it, between what you might say the investor inputs into ESG or looking at ESG as investor inputs. So that's judging investments on a risk-weighted return of capital basis, which is what Martha and her team's doing. And then the values, is it sustainable? Is it green? And the two things, it's not simply ESG. We witnessed a couple of years ago, one of the first green financings in uh, in Norway, I remember, was, the, if I can say it, the slightly farcical situation of some new oil shuttle tankers getting green finance. Now, that is, it's easy to laugh at that. However, the intention was that these were better ships, run more, that they were going to be, are they, um, do they have electrical standby power, I think, if I remember rightly? So they are greener, but they're shipping crude today and in the next 20 years, you know, and it's, so it's not going into green fuel at all, although you know, it's possible that it will. Is that bad? Well, no, because it's a step forward. Is it good? Well, it's questionable, isn't it, on the on the latter. So that dividing dividing one's minds between the inputs of measuring the quality of investments today versus actually the um, the sort of the social ethical sustainability drive, I think, is a very important to sort of bifurcation split we we need to make. The green transition, where it is in shipping, where it stands. I think one thing that perhaps the industry isn't willing to face up to today is emissions aren't falling. They're rising. They rose last year. They'll rise this year on the back of rising trade. They're likely to continue raising through much of this decade. Bluntly, we haven't even really started. 
the IMO's um, uh, efficiency measures will bring things down 5, 10, 15% perhaps, but that really isn't getting at it. Where it comes into its own is the 2030s. The 2030s needs to be the big bang where we move from perhaps a 25% reduction from 2008 to 90%. If you speak to some of the, the analysts, they can see that that's where it needs to happen. That is where new ships burning clean fuels need to be uh, need to be uh, need to be coming in to get to that point uh, will require a lot of these a lot of these pieces to clarify a lot of the uncertainty to move away better metrics as i say and the support of um, support of finance lifted by a carbon tax it's a lot to ask for it's possible but it's a lot to ask for thank you i believe you wanted to comment as well no, I think I think I leave it by that. I think it's. Um, I mean, we are we are back again to to reach these uh, to move on. I mean, we need a clarity and predictability on the on the on the on, on the on the global carbon tax and and these uh, regulations. Uh, and in the meantime, we just have to work together with our customers to do what we can without having this price on carbon. And and as I said, I think a lot can be done. And whether it's 20%, 30%, but there is, is material what you can actually do today without changing uh, fuel, which may require, which may be the next step that will take a little bit more time. Hmm. And I think also what Julian was pointing at, this uh, dilemma in ESG, so to speak, it also depends on you know how you want to be seen as an enabler of new technology, then maybe it is more ESG to invest in the technology development, also the climate risk in the activity you're supporting might still be quite high. And uh, maybe we'll see more nuanced uh, thinking uh, around uh, ESG and uh, the whole transition that, that needs to happen. Uh, Johanna, your uh, your members or the, the participants in uh, in GMF, they talk a lot about uh, 2030 as well and, and how to, to get get there. And, uh, you know, Green Corridors is one initiative. Do you, are you optimistic about 2030? Do you see any initiatives popping up that will really drive development? Yeah, and actually, uh, thank you for that uh, opportunity to comment on that because I, I actually wanted to, you had, you'd framed it earlier, I can't remember what the, as you were Engelberg, but as, as a, as the sort of the cost of the transition, but there's also a tremendous opportunity in the transition. I think this is the one that we really see stakeholders in the value chain, um, uh, going for. And so one is that, uh, First of all, the cargo interests play such an important role and can carry a, a lot of the cost, at least in the early phases, or certainly be part of sharing the cost. So if we can find mechanisms to share the cost, especially amongst the, the first movers, um, I think we can we can already see that that's beginning to happen. That the stakeholders are coming together and figuring out what exactly will it cost them, and 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 how and and how can we make sure that that burden is shared. Um, additionally, uh, many of the uh, whether it's the big mining companies, uh, in, you know, traders, and others, um, as well as consumer goods companies, are setting their own own carbon goals, and those are uh, all encompassing. 
So in other words, they, whilst it's true that the ocean shipping is, uh, is only a small fraction, say, of the overall emissions of a big mining company, they are still part of their overall emissions goals. And so many of them, in fact, do set specific goals. And in order to meet those goals, they're going to need to become partners with the shipping industry in making the adoptions of zero, adoption of zero emission fuels uh, possible. So they oftentimes, if not only set, set goals for emissions reductions, but also which could perhaps be um, reaped uh, through efficiency gains, but also uh, on the sort of the percentage of zero emission ship goods. So a good example of that is uh, Rio Tinto that has set a, a specific target for, for 2030, how much of their product is, is shipped uh, zero emission by 2030. And so that means that they become partners in, 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 uh, in the introduction of zero emission fuels uh, likewise, some of the banks have set similar types of targets, et cetera. So, so there's an ecosystem that's working together to achieve these objectives. And that, that's what makes me optimistic is that there are, uh, that there are, uh, that there are many stakeholders in the value chain that are looking to achieve the same goals. Is it going to be hard? Yes, 100%. But it's, but it, there is, uh, there is a case to be made that even in the app, in this, in this decade, where we're unlikely to see the benefits of regulation fully reaped, um, uh, even an, a target ta carbon tax, if it is introduced, is likely only going to be in effect uh, later in this decade or even into the next decade. There's lots that can be done, um, even in, in the absence of that, especially amongst the first movers. Mm -hmm. So that's promising. And of course, there are other potential um, regulatory measures that can be made either at a national or regional level uh, that can have similar positive effects. Mm -hmm. We, are, we have a few questions now from the audience, but uh, I have one final question for Marta before we, we move on to that, because a lot of the uh, initiatives right, that we see now are spearheaded by very large companies, both on the cargo side, but also on the, the ship owner side. Uh, and this, is, but this transition and this change to, towards full decarbonization also needs to include the smaller uh, ship owners. Uh, is this uh, something that you keep in mind that, uh, as a bank, that there might be different needs Depending on uh, the type of company. So. No, I think that's that's a really really good point. And uh, inclusivity here is hugely important, right? And it goes back to what Joanna was saying about the transition as well. We're all in this transition together, so we have to move everybody in the same direction. So there's a couple of different um, projects and pilots that have been made just to try to enable this. So for example, the transition linked financing pilot that we did with the green shipping program last year, together with KLP, a large Norwegian pension provider, and uh, and DNB is sort of trying to make clear um, a clear guidance and framework for sustainable finance, for example. And because that's, that's the issue, right? Because there's so much reporting coming, there's so much different expertise that needs to be handled, then you can't expect also that every organization in an industry that is sort of probably more asset heavy than person heavy um, has you know, all these resources on board. So it's really, really important that the industry also uh, tailors solutions so that both the large companies that have these huge organizations and knowledge and resources to handle these things, but also the smaller companies can actually uh, work together on this and sort of have their relative improvements and what they're able to do. Mm. I think that's a really important uh, aspect of, of uh, this transition. Uh, let's, let's look at a couple of questions from uh, from the audience. Uh, and we have uh, one question on you know whether we see 
uh, cargo owners and, and uh, other companies in the in the value chain do they apply uh, an internal or a shadow carbon price uh, to make better decisions in in the uh, in the supply chain? Is this something that our panelists are aware of or have seen in the, in the market? Uh, Johanna, you're you're nodding. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we have seen, and it's it's quite a common practice especially in large industrial corporations, to, to use an internal sort of carbon price as a, as a mechanism to start calculating uh, and, and uh, incorporating uh, functionally, a, I guess, a, a sort of a carbon risk, if you will. Um, but the interesting thing, which is a finding that we found from, uh, within the context of a large shipping company, is that even just introducing the line item in a budget, <laughs> whether even if it's set to zero, it actually changes the dynamic of the decision making. And that's something that we've seen in studies in other sectors as well, is that just adding the line, even if it's set at zero, it changes dynamic and it changes the dynamic of decision making to incorporate um, considerations around climate risks or climate opportunities, in fact. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I wanted to touch on that's not to the, the questions here in the, uh, from the audience, but um, maybe pointing back to, and I, I, sorry, I apologize, I can't recall who from the panel mentioned it earlier, maybe it was Julian, around the introduction of new fuels and the, and the, and the need for scale-up uh, on the on the renewable side. Um, a, um, one of the things that we've really seen is that there's a build-up of interest and the recognition of shipping as a potential early off-taker of zero-emission fuels, uh, particularly those that are derived from green hydrogen. And we see that by, for example, participation in our summit from a, a number of the green, green major green hydrogen developers. And so, you know, in a Norwegian context, Yara is a good example of that, right? And, and so, but there are others that operate globally and becoming, uh, becoming more and more involved uh, at a high level in the discussions and looking at um, uh, at uh, developing um, uh, joint projects, effectively uh, offtake agreements and the like, um, with with those from the shipping industry and of course the cargo interests all coming together uh, to secure that offtake. So I think that's one of the really interesting developments is that there is this kind of uh, a new stakeholder coming to the table who has a, a business interest. And who sees that and, and is engaging actively in the discussion, the discussions and looking at how can we make this work so that we can make this scale up of renewable energies and, and the, the production of the renewables based fuels actually happen at the scale that we need them when we get there. So when we get into the sort of the late twenties and early thirties, the quantities and, uh, of, of renewable energy in the system is going to be much greater or the need is much greater than what we have today. And so. But we need to lay the groundwork for that to happen now. Like if we wait, it's going to be too long. The development of these projects, the timeline is five, seven years. So if we want to make sure that we have the available fuels at that time, we need to be working on it to, on it today and making commitments today. Julian, you had a comment. Yeah, thanks. It was just on the carbon price, actually. It was, uh, it's quite interesting. Obviously, there are carbon prices now in California, in Australia, New Zealand, uh, South Korea, even China, although it's only about $7 uh, $7 a tonne. There are, there are carbon uh, trading uh, schemes. But the big one is obviously Europe. And the Commission is uh, has said as part of the Fit for 55, shipping maritime will be included in that. Also, the, some of the details are still being wrangled over, such as the size of ships. But what's interesting there in the short term now is the, the way that... Um, the price of carbon has collapsed over the last uh, couple of months 
because of the impact of the Ukraine war, the Commission's been opening up uh, carbon credits to, uh, they've been pushing carbon credits on the market, the price has been going down, because they want to turn on some of the old fossil fuel uh, power stations, particularly. Um, so, you know, those things can play out. But the price, it was sort of thick end of 100 uh, euros a ton, it's now down to mid to mid 60s. And it's interesting that those prices in terms of when we're talking about global uh, global carbon uh, levies, those are the sorts of range of prices that are getting serious. Uh, the in Europe, the uh, the carbon emissions are down about just a bit over forty percent, I think, from the uh, the mid two thousands, uh, and uh, they hope to uh, bring them down by. Um, I've got a note of here. Uh, well, it's actually the fifty five, isn't it? The fit for fifty five, fifty five percent by twenty thirty which is where the shipping piece comes in. So the pricing, uh, is, uh, the the internal pricing is real because of the real impact in Europe. And with shipping being uh, drawn into that, uh, shipping will have will start to see the impact of that in, on its own behaviours, I'm sure, in the next five years. And I think also what's interesting with the design of the, the ETS is that it's only covering 50% of international emissions from shipping which provides a, an incentive to other countries to implement a similar system on, on the other side. Uh, so what will come first, uh, IM, an IMO global system or rather regional uh, linkages? Uh, I think that's uh, uh, up, in the, up for debate, uh, but it's definitely not, uh, it's not impossible to see that uh, that kind of development could, uh, could happen. Uh, Engelbert, I believe you tried to raise your hand as well. Yeah, no, I'm just back into point of Johanna, and I fully agree with Johanna that we view the, the decarbonisation as a business opportunity. There are a lot of possibilities which are there. And our dream is, of course, that when we introduce our next series of new builds, there will be zero emission. Uh, and we had hoped that, you know, some sort of a, a contribution from customers, from, you know, public finance, from port authorities, reducing port costs, uh, uh, and our own risk willingness would be enough to make it happen. But, but we also have to be frank that it's, it's, a, it's a huge challenge today for ship owners when you have to maybe increase the nubling cost by 20-25%. The fuel that you're going to burn is maybe three times as high uh, and there's no predictability on, on carbon taxes. Uh, and, uh, and so far, I mean, to be honest, I mean, there is limited, uh, what we call specific interest from customers to, to join in on this. Uh, we we believe it will come, but but at least it's. I just wanted to uh, to be to to be open on it that this is, is a challenge. It's big money for ship owners. Merce can do it. They are half of a um, big percentage of BNP of Denmark. But you know, for medium sized ship owners, that's that's a challenge. How, how do you, because it involves a lot of risk, but a lot of opportunities as well. So we we are we are continuing to working on it, and we believe it's important to be in the forefront. But of course, we have. Then, then I want to challenge you, Ingrid, because we, we have a, have a question from uh, Max mm. in the audience uh, about when there will be more long-term procurement contracts for low and uh, zero emission fuel. So, you know, what what needs to be in place uh, in order for that to happen? Well, of course, it, it, it is definitely, which as uh, some of the other panelists have touched in, it's a bit chicken and egg, really, uh, because without the, the specific, you know, willingness to procure and to contract. Uh, people like Yara will may not uh, build and expand the facilities, but at the same time, you know, it's there are no what we call introduction offer uh, with with these people in uh, in 
when it comes to low, I mean, like green ammonia. I mean, it's it's basically to get the fuel, you have to commit an offtake agreement over a long time, which also implies a lot of risks. So it, it is complicated. I'm not saying that we we, we don't not going to do it. We're going to continue to work on it. But, but I just think it's, it's important to be open that it, it is a challenge. And, and, mm. and also with, with, with these uh, companies introducing the, the supply of, of green fuels. Now we also have a question here whether carbon offsets uh, could become a solution like what we've seen in uh, aviation. And I think on, the, on that point, it's also important to, to mention that uh, carbon offsets can be used for ETS compliance by aviation in the, in the EU, but that will not be the case for for shipping. Uh, so it will probably not take off in the in the same manner. Uh, but we also have another question on uh, on the supply chain. Uh, someone is asking if it's only ship owners uh, that is uh, focus. Do they focus on carbon reduction mainly because the IMO is asking them to do it, or are there any other uh, uh, motivations uh, here? And we have touched upon that question from from different angles, but I think it boils down to you know. Is there is there a business value in being a leader, or is it better to just you know wait and see a little bit and then uh, be a follower here? I think we have to do both. I think everybody has to do both. Sometimes you lead and sometimes you follow, and that's when you will get that iteration and hopefully we we get far enough. That's, uh, I think that's a very very diplomatic uh, answer there. Uh, Johanna, we're also, you know, uh, the next months are going to be really important in terms of uh, lobbying and uh, discussions uh, in the IMO. So what would be your advice to industry that would like to see a more ambitious climate strategy, uh, including a market-based uh, measure in, uh, in the IMO? What, what should we do uh, over the next few months? And, and what's the most important messages to to put across to the government that will ultimately decide. Uh, yeah, and, and thank you. You, uh, you. you make a good point in the governments that decide, because I think one thing that's often conflated is that it's, um, I'm always seen as a, as a whole, and I'm always seen to move slowly or, or not fast enough as a whole, but actually it's made up with individual governments. So thinking of it as a government by government strategy is one thing. So uh, in any context that, uh, that uh, a company operates to think about what's the role of my government in this context? Can I, can I play a positive role in impacting and, and, and supporting uh, uh, my government in making decisions at the IMO that will be to the benefit of the whole system? Um, I think the other thing that's going to be incredibly important is understanding the role of equity. Um, and uh, equity at a global scale. I think there's a lot of discussions in the shipping sector about how the revenues from a carbon tax are to support um, the development of fuels and in sector. And of course, that's an incredibly important role. But I think one thing that became really clear in the discussions in uh, at the annual summit that we just had and, and over the past year in the context of the Getting to Zero Coalition is, in, especially those that are working in the policy sphere, is how important equity and, and the use of funds outside of shipping will play. Because after all, there are many developing and, low and middle-income countries at the IMO who, who, who are concerned and rightfully concerned about the potential impact of, uh, of uh, a higher cost of trade on their economies, especially 
uh, economies that are in that are are very dependent on on maritime trade one way or another, either because they're exporting commodities or importing or, or highly import, highly import depending. So a lot of trade dependent economies that are concerns about the potential impacts on their economies and so we need to think about how are they compensated and and then in, in addition to that there are a lot of climate vulnerable countries that for whom uh, again there needs to be a benefit and so having a, a good mature conversation within the sector and uh, and in collaboration with government stakeholders about the role of support um, for an equitable transition is going to be key to making anything happen at the island. So that's that's perhaps one thing that I would leave with. Julian, you had your hand up before, uh, and if, if you still wanted to come. Ingrid, after you, if you're just going to make a comment. No, no, please, please, please. Just on the, uh, just going back a couple of steps to the carbon offsetting, I thought it was very interesting that earlier this week, EasyJet, the low-cost airline, uh, abandoned their carbon offsetting scheme, and they were one of the leaders because they said it's just not fit for purpose. It doesn't deliver. They are going to aim for zero carbon, and they won't get to zero carbon by 2050 for obvious reasons. But they are—they believe effectively what they're saying is they're wasting money on offsets that they they haven't got confidence in. And frankly, I—I I, well, that's I think a, you know, potentially I won't overplay it, but potentially a, sort of quite a uh, quite a benchmark uh, decision there. Going to the uh, the IMO, one thing that I feel quite strongly about actually uh, is the the role of owners and charterers over the next uh, six to nine months in uh, lobbying constructively uh, governments to actually uh, do the right thing. There does need to be an equitable transition, as uh, Johanna uh, Johanna says, and uh, many countries in the global south are more exposed. However, IMO's discussions are a little bit of a political football for some of those countries. Some of the Latin American countries, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, some of the African countries, they want the developed world to pay up some of the money that was promised 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, I think it was 10 years ago, wasn't it? And we we are simply sitting on it. I say we. The North is simply sitting on its hands at the moment and hasn't got its checkbook out. Uh, we need to do that. And there, if you saw that, then perhaps some things, uh, some things in, the, in the, the specific sectors may loosen up. Where I say uh, owners and charterers and operators can do something, it's, if I may be blunt, um, part of, uh, if we accept that IMO is, does suffer from corporate ca capture to a lesser or greater extent, the industry does have a very big voice with national governments. The problem is historically, that's been a something of a lowest common denominator name again. No, the uh, the national ship owners associations have lobbied their governments on behalf of all their ship owners. The global ship owners of uh, associations have then collectively lobbied, and the bar has gone down to a lowest common denominator. What I would say to people listening here, probably, and and uh, the the coalition of the willing, you need to go to your commercial partners, the flag states that you are using directly, and say to them, we will be benchmarking you against others to see what your performance is in terms of your your uh, appetite for uh, for uh, higher standards for uh, driving the uh, the energy uh, transition there's a there's a real power in the uh, the agency of the uh, the commercial world historically I, I would personally argue that hasn't been used constructively often this is an opportunity ironically to use 
that in a highly constructive way. Am I confident that certainly the next six months, uh, you know, the, the June uh, MEPC meeting will make a landmark move? Um, speaking to a few people over the last week, um, those people involved and fairly uh, straight people, they are very pessimistic. Uh, that was the signals I was getting, that people didn't think there would be any sort of breakthrough. Hopefully there won't be some um, uh, pointless fudge that delays things, but uh, um, pessimistic about a breakthrough. And perhaps not surprising with uh, with everything that's that's going on. Uh, Engelbetsy, you are uh, known for not being afraid to speak your uh, mind on uh, what's happening in in uh, in the IMO. What what would be your encouragement for uh, decision makers? No, I, th- I think it, I think it, I agree with Julian that you know uh, ship owners have to uh, to to lobby their governments, and and we are definitely doing that, uh, and. And I think it's uh, I think it's just that they have to. I mean, small countries like Norway, the EU, the US have to establish, you know, uh, some sort of a united front to move things on, because there is this this uh, this factor of uh, the southern countries and, uh, and 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 you know the total. Uh, what we call decarbonization world economy, which you know it drags into lot into the discussion on on shipping emission, uh, but but I think it it's, it is really critical to that that it's not only making the, the deal done so you can have it on your CV. It's actually making the right deal that actually will 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 give results, and and that was what I, I we saw about the shorter measures. I believe that that was partly a result of that the shipping industry itself was not united. They went for the the, the lowest standard possible, uh, and and also that uh, it may be that the, the governments were too keen to get things done rather than doing it right. So I think that's the lessons learned for the next stage, which is will be even more important. Uh, and uh, I'm optimistic that something will happen, but it's probably going to take longer time than any of us believe. Uh, and it's competing with a lot of uh, the concerns at the moment. So time is almost up, but it's uh, the moderator's privilege to ask a final question. So I want to do rounds with the panel. Uh, yes, no. Are shipping emissions still high enough on the agenda uh, for uh, decision makers in the run-up for the IMO meeting next year? Who wants to go first? Marta. No, I'll, 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 let me wade in. Yes, they still are. They still are high on the agenda, but today it's difficult for some people actually to take a physical investment decision because of the technology and fuel questions. Yeah, Marta. No, I can only say that. And as back to what Joanna was saying at the beginning, uh, we have a positive view, and I think we'll we'll continue to see this sort of short term volatility and a lot of complexity going forward, but the this is a long game, right? So it's a long trend that we have to keep our eyes on the price, so to speak. Johanna? Yeah, I'd actually like to answer by by quoting somebody from the summit just now, from the closing plenary, which I, it's a really nice quote that I liked. And that sort of, for me, also feels like it's kind of encapsulates a lot of the discussions, which was from Jeremy Nixon, the CEO of ONE. Uh, and he said, let's keep going. Let's double down our efforts. We've got storm clouds on the global economy. Let's not get blown off course. Let's keep the discipline and show that shipping can do it. And I think for me, that really encapsulates the kind of the, 
energy and the focus that we see in a large swath of of the shipping industry, and uh, and that's <laughs> I'm here for that. <laughs> so so yeah. What what makes me optimistic is, of course, that if you look back, we can be impatient, but a lot of things have happened over the last three years. Uh, and we are at an early phase. I mean, we are just seeing ourselves, how much we learn by being active and trying. And I think that's the, the challenge I have to know other ship owners and to customers is that they actually have to start trying to work on it, be active, because this is some sort of craftsmanship. You don't learn it by, without, by doing. And I think that's... Um, but I'm optimistic. We, this is going to be very exciting and just keep on uh, pushing. Mm -hmm.